1: and the secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline
0: edition July 8, 1947.
1: make yourself at home. To listen to all our shows, just go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You'll have access to all our seasons going back to 2008, and you'll receive your login immediately. And have you listened to Sanitas Radio yet? It can improve and maybe even save your life, or that of a loved one. You won't want to miss it. That's if you want to take control of your life. Go to sanitasradio.com to listen and subscribe. And don't forget, you can purchase MMS directly from us, as well as our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material. Just visit the Veritas store. And to get in touch with us, for members' support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And tonight, we discuss the present and the future with scientist, best-selling author, and futurist, Dr. David Brin. Right now, on Veritas. David Brin, Ph.D., is a scientist and best-selling author whose future-oriented novels include The Postman and Earth. His Uplift Bay's Hugo Award winners include Star Tide Rising* and The Uplift War. The Postman inspired a major film in 1998. Brin is also known as a leading commentator on modern technological trends. His nonfiction book, The Transparent Society, won the Freedom of Speech Award of the American Library Association. Brin's newest novel, Existence, explores the ultimate question. Billions of planets may be ripe for life, even intelligence. So, where's everybody? And we have a more comprehensive bio at our website. And to learn more about Dr. David Bryn and his work, visit his website at davidbryn. dot com. And directly from San Diego, California, I would like to welcome, and it's a privilege to introduce Dr. David Bryn to Veritas. Hello, Dr. Bryn, and welcome to Veritas.
0: I am so proud to be welcomed on Veritas. It's a wonderful, wonderful program.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure. May I call
0: you David? <coughs> Absolutely. And I'll, I'll 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 refer to you as. As, as Mel. Please, please do. I have the latest book here in front of me,
1: Existence. And although it's a novel and we discussed this before the, the show, a lot of information that we see here could be applied to our own existence. And that's why we are calling this show Existence. Do all civilizations make the same fatal mistakes? Do they, David?
0: Well, um, for about 30 years I've been engaged in what's called SETI, or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, It's both in my fiction and as a scientist, as an astronomer. And it is, of course, the big question. Are we alone in this fantastic, huge cosmos, uh, a galaxy that contains about half a trillion stars and there are about half a trillion galaxies? I mean, the, the, the size of the cosmos and the number of places where my, life might evolve um, is mind-blowing. So the idea that we would be alone, well, that's an awful big waste of space. So the question then becomes, um, why don't we see any signs of advanced civilizations? In theory, human human beings in just a thousand years are going to be building fantastic constructions, around other stars, uh, things that are, might be called Dyson spheres, uh, D-Y-S-O-N, Dyson spheres, which might enclose an entire star and use all of its sunlight. Um, why do we see no signs that anybody else has done this sort of thing before? Why do the radio searches across our sky um, hear none of the um, leakage of the radio um, and television or, or advanced communication systems of other aliens? Why do we not see any beacons from those advanced life forms uh, that would be greeting us and helping us across our own adolescence? Um, this is not to say that they're not out there. Uh, I, I believe that, uh, that there are beings out there to some degree, but clearly the numbers are more sparse than we used to think they were. And then the question is, why? <coughs> Pardon. So then, the question then becomes: um, Why do why do we seem to be fairly lonely right now? I'm putting aside UFOs and things like that because uh, I, I I don't really credit those. Uh, and if UFOs really are aliens uh, buzzing farmers and disemboweling cattle and doing pulling stunts, then I don't consider that to be intelligent life. But, um the question then becomes, what may be keeping the numbers down out there? and there's a there's a tool for looking at this. It's called the Drake Equation. And it says that the number of intelligent life forms out there um, that might be visible, Well, you take the number of stars and you take the fraction of those stars that uh, might be good, stable stars, and you take the fraction of those that have planets, and then the fraction of those that have planets that have liquid water um, at decent temperatures. And then you take the fraction of those that actually develop life, and the fraction of the life-bearing planets that actually develop intelligence, and the fraction of those that develop civilization and the fraction of those that survive long enough to be detected. And if you multiply that all out, well, you should get the number that are in our galaxy. So, what do we get? Carl Sagan and the other optimists, they thought that there had to be at least a million other civilizations in the galaxy when they did all that calculating. Uh, it's beginning to look as if it's probably more sparse than that, but why? why? Well, if you take a look at those factors, the fraction of stars that have planets—we now know an answer to that. Whereas we didn't know just 15 years ago. Just 15 years ago, we didn't know uh, of any planets outside of our solar system. Now we know of more than a thousand, and there are three or four thousand candidates that are being checked right now. So within a couple of years, we may know of two or three or four thousand planets outside our solar system. What an amazing time to be alive! And some of these planets orbit their stars in what's called the Goldilocks zone. And that's the zone where they're just the right distance from their star. They're not too far, so they're not too cold. They're not too close, so they're not too hot. But they're just right. That's why it's called the Goldilocks zone. And we've already found some that orbit their stars in this zone, the way the Earth orbits the zone around our sun. So if that's the case, then that factor is probably high. So then what are the other factors? And if you like, we could talk about that uh, as far as, you know, how likely is it that life evolves? How likely is intelligence?
1: I remember a few years ago, I had a conversation with Edgar Mitchell the astronaut and we discussed that our priority as a species should be to preserve the species and find an alternative to planet earth we we talk about all these planets that are in the Gold, uh, goldilocks zone but if you don't have a way to get there how close are we to achieving this
0: well that's a that's an extremely good question um we're fairly close to being able to go and mine asteroids. That's the current plan for the United States space program. It's close enough that some billionaires are investing in a company that is hoping to get rich by getting these resources. Uh, let me take a little detour and talk about that because it is so fascinating. There are there are probably a billion asteroids orbiting our sun. Um, uh, tens of millions of them large enough to be dangerous to the Earth. Uh, we know that 165 million years ago killed the dinosaurs and almost wiped out life on Earth. Um, so, the United States Congress has demanded that NASA and the military at least find these asteroids and and figure out if any of them are coming soon. And, and so far, the results are encouraging. Uh, the one that blew up over Russia last year was a little frightening, and some people were injured. But uh, that's not the kind that really we have to worry about. And so far, it looks as if None that we've found so far are heading, heading toward us in the near future. That leaves comets, of course, which might hit us from by surprise. But there's another aspect to these asteroids, and that is that um, they contain fantastic amounts of resources. If you were to find the right one kilometer cross asteroid, bring it into orbit around the moon and melt it down, what would you have – you would have the entire world's steel production for a year. You'd have the entire world's gold and silver production for a hundred years and the world's platinum group elements for a thousand years, a thousand times the platinum and other rare earths and things like that that we um, pull out of our minds every single year. Well, that's an awful lot of wealth. And of course, if you brought it home – Platinum and gold prices would would drop, so you can't actually calculate it simply how rich you'd be, but you'd get pretty darn rich. But the real wealth is using these resources in space, where we could make beautiful spinning colonies, like uh, in the movie Elysium, only one hopes much nicer and, and not ruled by terrible oligarchs.
1: Hopefully, yeah.
0: But uh, we could make Elysium type structures by the hundreds, by the thousands. And I'm not saying we could make this tomorrow, But within the spe- across the next hundred years, all the physics is there, all the engineering calculations are there. We could do it if we wanted to. And the result would be that we would be so rich that we could stop tearing into, the earth with our minds and our drills and turn the earth into a park we would be so rich and that's what those billionaires who are behind the planetary resources company that's what they're trying to do that they want to get rich by finding all these things and making us all rich others want to go to the moon which i think in the near future at least is a waste of time because the moon in the near twenty, 30, 40 year, mid-year period, is really of no use to humanity. The asteroids might be. But then after that 20, 30, 40 year period, then we're talking about Mars. And my colleague, the great science fiction author, Kim Stanley Robinson, he has a series of novels called Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, that is truly fabulous um, that um if you like science fiction this is science fiction for grown-ups it can it takes you to across the span of several thousand years as we terraform Mars and this is the activity that um uh, that the great Elon Musk would like us to do. He's the Edison of our time, um, the man behind the Tesla electric car, the sure. SpaceX space launch system that's revolutionary, uh, revolutionizing our ability and access to space. And he wants to make an entirely new type of public transportation system in California you can look it up it's called the um, the loop what's it called again I, something um but in any event Elon Musk he's motivated by getting all these technologies together so we can b- become rich enough to start colonizing Mars because he believes that we should not keep all of our eggs in one basket we should spread out because then if something bad happens to the earth then the people of Earth can call for help from the people in the space colonies. And if something bad happens to the space colonies, they can call for help from the people of Earth. But if we screw up the Earth and don't have any people elsewhere, then who will we call for help?
1: And that's exactly the point of my conversation with uh, Mitchell. But you say that the moon might not be a productive uh, endeavor, but isn't the moon... A good starting point. If we are to go to Mars, why haven't we returned to the Moon also after almost fifty years?
0: Well, um, you have to understand. We went to the Moon for two major reasons. One was uh, political. We were in a space race. It helped to assert American pride and to um, put the Soviets in their place um, and and make them make it clear that. Are you still there, Mel? I'm still here. Okay, great. Um, the Make it clear that, you know, it was still the American century. Uh, that, that was a bit arrogant. But the other reason was science, and we learned an awful lot. We learned a lot about uh, nature, about the moon, about uh, the solar system, about the history, of about our own history. And we learned a lot of good technologies. But we didn't find treasure there. We didn't find any particular reason why we have to go back. Now, the Chinese just landed a robot probe there, and they intend to go back. But their biggest reason is, again, the same reason we went there, and that is national pride. There is a company now that is offering billionaires the chance to finance for just $5 billion, a lot less than we it cost us to go there with Apollo, to go – there as tourists. And I'm all in favor of that, because there's so much money pouring into the billionaire class right now, that if they were to spend their own money to increase our space technologies by getting to be historically the first lunar landing space tourist, I think that's a win-win for everybody. So I'm all in favor of that. But as far as tax dollars is concerned, I just don't see a useful return coming going going back to the moon. It it uh, from a cost benefit ratio. It's a waste of time and money. And at least over the next 30, 40, 50 years. Eventually, yes. I'm a member of NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts uh, group and we analyze um, uh, proposals for advanced concepts. And one of them is to land a robot on the moon and another on Mars that will anchor itself at the edge of these wonderful holes that our orbiting space probes have found that appear to be deep underground caves that are lava tube tunnels tunnels where lava used to flow. And they have these in Hawaii, so we know exactly what they're like. And sometimes the roofs of these caves cave in, and we've spotted what seems to be a few of these cave-ins, in which case there may be these underground chambers that would make ideal places for um, our first colonies, and these robots will anchor themselves at the lip of these holes and then lower themselves down, or it's called repel themselves down to the bottom, and then explore these caves. Well, I might be wrong about the moon. I'm all in favor of continuing to do robot science there.
1: You know, in preparation for this interview, I was looking at NASAC because for some reason I always felt that they didn't want private the private industry to be involved but yesterday I saw the news coming from Cape Canaveral the headlines NASA puts out call for private moon landers and they want to be a catalyst to help to commercialize space tourism what's your take on this
0: well I think that things changed remarkably when we changed administration's in the um, in 2009 Until that point, the administration had spoken a lot about wanting to privatize, but had done nothing. Um, After 2009, the Obama administration um, privatized uh, launch systems to the um, International Space Station. uh, And that's the contract that uh, Elon Musk successfully competed for, along with uh, another company, Orbital Sciences. And so now uh, NASA simply hires them to efficiently deliver cargo to the ISS. Um, The billionaires who are engaged in planetary resources, these are getting encouragement from NASA and from the administration. And it's almost a partnership because NASA's goal now is to handle the astronaut side of exploring the um, asteroids. And the billionaires uh, in planetary resources they are going to do the um, surveying the robotic surveying of of these asteroids, and w- we might all share in the profits and the benefits i 'm um, not saying that this will happen, but there 's a lot of good science fiction out there you know of course, ninety percent of science fiction is trash, but ninety percent of any art form is trash. But there's some very, very good science fiction out there that is about these exploration uh, efforts in the solar system. I mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson's wonderful Mars series, um, and Ben Bova, B-O-V-A, has a number about exploring and settling the moon. Um, uh, my own <laughs> novel, Heart of the Comet, is about the colonization of comets, and um, uh, and, and my novel Existence explores the, um, the asteroid belt. So, um, there are, there are some wonderful ways that listeners can learn more about this sort of thing. Um, a, a great site is online is called Science 2.0. Um, and of course, uh, Discover Magazine is a wonderful way to start becoming, getting up a little. On uh, all the wonderful changes and some of the changes that are coming in this next century that are kind of frightening. Uh, and we need a, we need a public that, who are uh, up to date on these issues, who understand science a bit better. Um, because th- all of this um, yelling and screaming about gl- global climate change, for example, um, uh, all heat and no light, That's going on out there. And if you're actually a fairly well-educated American, well, the best magazine out there is Scientific American. But there was a very interesting um, survey that came out last year, and the news media uh, didn't know what to do with it. It was about adult science literacy. Uh, Did you see that one, Mel? No, I haven't. Uh, well, this it was kind of quashed by the news media, not for political reasons, but because it didn't fit the narrative. The narrative is that Americans are stupid, that our schools are terrible, and that we are behind everybody, and that we're everything's falling apart. Uh, it's an insane narrative. Uh, it it doesn't mesh with reality in any level, but it fits the current American mood. You see because the United States is right now in the third phase of of the American Civil War. Uh, And so we're not in problem-solving mode. We're not in negotiating mode. We're not in the mood for anything optimistic. Well, you know, we hear about all these um, international surveys that shows our, our kids, our graduating high school seniors are stupid at math. They don't know any history. They don't know any science. And these, these uh, international tests, they measure memorized knowledge. And kids all over the world are beaten by their parents, so they study and cram hard and they memorize. They memorize facts, they memorize procedures for these tests that terrorize the high school students all over the world, but not, not in the United States. If you're The kids who are afraid of our SAT tests, <laughs> they don't know fear. Um, because you have a wide variety of colleges you can get into, and if you miss one, you get into another. Um, And so our teenagers have much less tension. They memorize less, and naturally, as a result, they don't do well on these tests. But meanwhile, our teenagers in high school, they argue. They read the text that they were sent home to read that night. But instead of memorizing the chapter, they marshal their arguments for the inevitable class discussion the next day. And so what they're doing is they're not learning anything, but they're learning the skills of argumentation. And that's why Americans, the last industry the Americans will dominate is lawyers, because we're fantastic arguers. But here's what happens when they go to college. Too many lawyers. Too many, but, you know, it's 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 uh, it may be our role in the world. What happens is the kids go to college, and then a funny thing happens. There's a part of the brain that only really kicks in in your 20s, and that's called the prefrontal lobes. Teenagers don't really have them kicked in yet. That's why teenagers are so bad at, at paying attention to the consequences of their actions, because these prefrontal lobes are what we use To look ahead, to imagine the consequences of our actions or to imagine that we are other people. And they kick in while we're in college. And so in college, you wind up actually paying attention in class and learning a thing or two. And this leads to the result that one country had by far the best adult science literacy. And do you know what that country was? Which one? It was the United States of America. By far the highest adult science literacy. Canada was in second place with, with half as high a score. Now, it was an abysmal, terrible score of 20%. Uh, Americans Americans are scientifically dumb. But 20% was twice as good as number two. Why? How could that be if our kids graduate from high school and don't know anything? Because it measured adult science literacy. And that includes millions upon millions of college graduates who had to, because of the American university system and its breadth requirements, even if you're an English major or a history major or an arts major, you have to take three or four science classes in college. And that's not the case overseas. In Europe, in Asia. When you go to college at age 18, you specialize and you don't, if you go into arts or something, you never have to take another science class again. So it's a very, very simple reason why the United States scored so much better in one category. Um, and, and, of course, it's not enough because uh, scientifically we are very stupid um, or, or this whole climate change thing would have, you know, we would have settled this argument long ago.
1: You know, we were mentioning attorneys. Why is it then – and I'm, I'm glad I'm speaking with you, David, because we can discuss so many, so many areas. But 43% of our Congress is composed of attorneys and 60% – of the Senate, why don't we see more scientists, perhaps small business owners, other minds? Why do we see so many attorneys representing us?
0: Well, it's, it's because they, they have that ambition to, uh, to, 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 to do this. They have the ambition to, um, to get into the law. And of course, Congress's job is to pass laws, and therefore, you know, lawyers know a thing or two about that. I don't mind lawyers being the largest group, but I do mind them being a majority. I think it's terrible how um, how few scientifically trained people there are in Congress. Um, right now, the Congressional Science Committee has almost nobody um, – committees have n- almost no members who know a darn thing about science. Um, the House of Representatives Science Committee, especially, is uh, dominated by individuals who, um, know al- know almost no science and, uh, are- seem to be proud to make that very clear with, with everything they say. And, uh, it's one thing to not be scientifically literate and in such a position, but with some humility. It's another thing to um, express it with utter arrogance, as these fellows do, um, with contempt for the um, for science. Uh, the the same individuals um, banished the um, the scientific uh, staff in Congress. It's unbelievable uh, during the Bush administration, Congress. Um, uh canceled out and wiped out the office of science and technology assessment their own in-house experts on science and technology they booted them out the door and canceled the OTSA um because it was very inconvenient to them it 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 uh, said things that were sometimes um shall we say different than the narrative the narrative of uh that they wanted They wanted to um, to pursue. So this is this is this is depressing, and especially since we are the country with the highest adult science literacy, then why are we um, insisting on lobotomizing ourselves? I find this I find this quite depressing.
1: And I can see the legislation part and the experience with law, but what about precedents? Twenty-six out of forty-four presidents were lawyers. That's close to sixty percent. If you, if you drop an attorney, in a chaotic situation, and all they know is law, really, what is their expertise in solving the problem?
0: Well, science fiction has a great metaphor for this, um, and that is the Golga Frensham B arc <laughs> A few of your, a few of your listeners out there are jumping up and down and yelling, "Yeah, right, friend! Tell them." Um, there's a famous, uh, humorous science fiction uh, series called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Love Douglas it. Adams. <clears throat> and it was turned into um, – it was first a radio show, then a novel, then uh, a couple movies. And um, in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a story of this planet Golga Fringsham, uh, which was really starting to uh, have some real problems. And so – Uh, the scientists announced that there was this terrible crisis coming, a giant space goat or something like that was going to eat the planet. So they created three great arcs to evacuate the planet. And the A arc was going to carry uh, all the thinkers and creative people. And the C arc was going to carry all the workers who actually get stuff done, who make things. And the B arc was going to carry all the middle managers and all the uh, account executives and lawyers and telephone sanitizers and and uh hairdressers and the B arc was launched first um so that everyone would know that when they arrived at the new colony planet um that they would be sure to have clean telephones and 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 everything nicely organized by the middle managers uh, and um our heroes who teleported aboard the uh, b Ark, they're starting to get what's happening here. And they, they say, so what happened to the A and C-Arc? Well, they're not following us. Apparently they must have been destroyed. When in fact the uh, B-Arc was sent and the A people who were supposed to go on the A and C-Arcs, they simply stayed and had a glorious civilization without all the, um, all the middlemen. Uh, I'm sure there are a few... Um, Hairdressers and lawyers out there who are fuming right now over this metaphor, but it was it was a cute story, and of course um, uh, they get their revenge because at the end of the story, um, everyone back on Frinsham is wiped out from a disease captured from um, spread by an unsanitized telephone. So. Uh, it, it all balances out, but but that that story, uh, that amusing little story, um, is about the whole notion of you know might we be better off without the lawyers? Um, well, I don't think so. I think that I think that our complicated laws right now and our complicated government right now. Have an easy explanation. And there's just too much hostility about it. Yes, all the complexity is extremely frustrating and irritating. But you know, you'd have to step back and look at what we're doing. We're cavemen. Genetically, we're no different than cavemen. And we grow up, we're unmodified, we we're we're very little above grunting, and if you look at teenage uh, at boys on a playground when they're ten years old, you can well understand uh, the in Golding's um, book, *The Lord of the Flies*. We're just you know three full meals away from chaos, and yet, what are these cavemen trying to do? We're trying to actually create a civilization that is filled with light and justice and minimizes the pain and ensures that every child can grow up and compete and, 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 um, and accomplish what, what, they, what, what they can, well, no other civilization ever had such a dream. They would have laughed at the amazing arrogance of thinking that we could do such a thing. And yet, by believing we can, we've come a long way. We've come a long way on this. Do you know that right now, at this moment, four-fifths of the world's children live in homes where they can turn on a light bulb, where some kind of refrigeration keeps the food and, and they have enough food? It may be poverty-level food, but they have enough every day. They have sanitation and they have books and they go to school. Four-fifths of the children on this planet. And it is horrific that one-fifth don't have that. And we should never be satisfied. But that, that 80% is higher ratio than ever existed in the history of humanity. And yet you would never hear about it in the news because politically no one wants to announce that. And we could go into later why, why it is politically forbidden to talk about the good news. But for now, just let me complete my point, and that is that we're trying to make a civilization of justice, and we don't know how. A hundred, two hundred years from now, when our our great-great-grandchildren are living in Star Trek. They'll understand the science of human nature, and we'll be able to have a nice, trim government, narrowed down to its essentials. And and in such a rich civilization, we'll know what we're doing, but we don't know what we're doing, and that's why the laws are so complex. That's why the um, that's why the the government is so complex, because. We're trying to do what no other generation ever thought possible, and that's actually make it all work, and we don't know how. So our laws consist of Band-Aids on Band-Aids on Band-Aids on Band-Aids. And that's really why it's so complex. It's not evil. Well, a lot of it is evil.
1: I'm thinking of the notion of As a child thinking, I hope that one day, if and when we visit another planet, wouldn't it be strange to come to that planet and find out that they're divided by countries, they're divided by languages, they're divided by religions? Wouldn't that be a thing of the past?
0: Well, you know, as as we speak... Um, English is becoming more and more the world language. Um, I was just at a European Union meeting in uh, Lithuania a month ago, and I had been to one 10 years earlier, and they were still trying to um, do translation with French and German and all of that. This year, absolutely none. No one was even trying to speak anything but English. Um, on the other hand, more actual human beings speak Mandarin Chinese as their native language than any other language. So, you know, some science fiction stories portray a future in which we, um, in which we, everybody speaks Anglese or, uh, uh, Chinese, you know, a combination of Chinese and English. Um I don't really see it because they're so different. It's going to be hard to blend them. But still, you know, we're heading toward that sort of thing. And it poses a very vexing problem for Americans. For the last 70 years, we've had on this planet uh, a world government of a sort that's been called Pax Americana, in the American peace. And this is what happens when one empire is strong enough to maintain the peace. And there was the um, Pax Alexandrine, when uh, Alexander's uh, Hellenistic age. There was the uh, Pax Romana of the Roman Empire, Pax Sinica, the Chinese Empire. Pax Britannica was the preceding one, where the British Empire maintained the world's peace. And when you have something like this, it's better in one way, and that is that cities aren't burning to the ground. Uh, sure, colonialism had, its, had, had many evil aspects, but at least cities weren't burning to the ground. And today, um, we hear a lot about violence around the world, and we should uh, try to address it. We should, it should bother us terribly, but levels of actual per capita violence around the world have been plummeting every decade since 1945. Um, And this is proved in Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. That's Steven Pinker, P-I-N-K-E-R. But our tolerance for violence is going down, as it should. So as violence is decreasing all around the world, our acceptance of it is going down, so we still think we're in a terribly violent time. And that's as it should be. You know, we should never be satisfied. We should always be pushing forward and always, always demanding higher standards. But the American peace, Pax Americana, ha- has done more than just, uh, keep the peace so that we could trade with each other. The trade rules since 1945, especially favored uh, poor countries, which didn't used to be the case. Uh, Gandhi's big complaint about the uh, British Empire was uh, that uh, they made sure that the trade patterns sent jobs to the homeland of England, whereas our trade patterns that we imposed since 1945 have always favored job development in Europe and Japan and then Korea and Taiwan and then Hong Kong and Singapore then then Malaysia and 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 now China and India being lifted up at the same time by what? By by Walmart, by Americans buying trillions of dollars worth of crap we never needed. And the jobs that this creates, uh, those jobs have resulted in four-fifths of the kids. Uh, coming home and being able to turn on a light bulb and study their school books. I'm not saying it's all good. I'm not saying it's great. I'm not saying that the that these factory conditions overseas are, are are good. I'm not saying anything of of that sort. What I'm saying is that this process has largely led to hope in the world. But here's the problem. Problem number one as we build a worldwide middle class How can the Earth sustain it? Well, it's going to have to be a world middle class that is vastly more efficient than Americans think of middle class. These people who are entering the middle class in China and Malaysia and all these places, their homes are going to have to be smaller than American homes. They're going to have to use a lot less energy than Americans use, a lot less of the world substance. And Americans are going to have to cut down on... How much we use, ideally through efficiency, so that we don't suffer a decline in our standard of living, or we don't notice, it just, we become more efficient. And if that's the case, then the earth will be able to sustain seven or eight billion people in a, in a fairly rich middle class. If it's sustainable middle class, like, like in Japan, like in Holland, uh, God help us if the if the entire world expects to have houses and energy use the way Americans got used to it, because the earth would not be able to sustain it. Well, I'm
1: glad you're referring to, to this topic, uh, talking about the economy. And I think uh, a huge part of this is planned obsolescence. And also add to that Edward Bernays type of propaganda, unless you buy the new car, you're a nobody. Unless you buy the new clothes or the new gadget, that's what keeps the economy going in a very artificial way. And as you say, if we create a middle class around the world, say China, and I think that, as you say also, the, the quality of the workers that we see there getting paid You know, very close to slavery, in my opinion. And the only reason why China has been growing is because we have been able to support that trend. Do you see that?
0: Well, um, look, you have to follow the textile mills. Uh, You might have seen a movie once called The Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier. Yeah, well, that movie uh, was about a period in the 60s when the textile mills making clothes were moving from the north to the south of the United States. And they were moving because um, the nasty, rapacious owners of the factories didn't want unions. Well, all right. So they moved to the South, and and then you had the movie Norma Ray in the 70s, which was about unionizing in the American South. Sally well, what Field. Ha- Sally Field. So then it, well, let's follow the movies. Uh, the, the, the The textile mills moved to Japan. And very quickly got unionized, so then they moved to Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore. But they they quickly got unionized within 10 years. So they moved on, and for a long time, a good 20 years, they were in China. Um, but now the labor is too expensive and too uppity in China, so the textile moves have, mills have moved to Bangladesh. And that's where we had that terrible tragedy in the, um, in the uh, oppressive conditions, uh, slave, slave-like conditions in the Bangladesh factory last year that collapsed and killed a 1,000 people. And um, activists in the United States and in Europe very rightfully – um, campaign to make sure that um, our clothing um, uh, has labels that say "slavery free" or that that um, Target and Costco um, send inspectors um, when they buy from companies overseas. Send inspectors to the to the factories um, to make sure that the conditions aren't horrific. Um, and then you know other companies like Walmart resist this. Um, but this it's important that we look at it in two ways. One is we should feel terrible about the conditions and and, and and agitate and fight and march and do all the right things to and uh to to um to help, but also step back and look at the process for ten years. The textile mills were in the American south; they developed a middle class there to some degree. Then they moved on and developed a middle class, a lower middle class in, in Japan. Then they moved on. What happened to the, to that, to that lower middle class in Japan? Assembly plants, car assembly plants. Well, the assembly plants, car assembly plants aren't in Japan very much anymore because they moved on to Korea and Taiwan and now China. This flow first the textile mills, then the, then the assembly plants, which may be grueling, but they're better than the textile mills. And then people unionize there, and then, then, then better jobs. I'm not trying to sing a happy-go-lucky song. I'm saying that it's an overall good process that's filled with pain. And if we want the good while suppressing the bad, then we have to understand how this is going on. And then what we can do is we can try to see to it that this process is as humane and gentle and decent as possible, even if that means that Americans have to pay $6 for a bag full of tube socks instead of $5 for a bag full of tube socks. So how do you classify me politically? Because I'm not wringing my hands and only looking at the bad, you might call me a right-winger. But because I am sincere in wanting all sorts of measures to be taken to try to reduce the bad and the pain, that makes me me sound left-wing. What we've got to do is escape from the domination of this lobotomizing, stupid, cliche called the left-right political access
1: you read my mind i was just going to say that
0: it it, it we it. if we should abandon it if for no other reason because it's french but that's that's a joke but the yeah the the other reason to abandon it is that it's being used in the united states by monsters by true traitors to stoke up culture war and fury and hatred so that one half of the country hates the other half of the country instead of doing what Americans have always been brilliant at, and that's negotiating. All right, on this issue, maybe you lefties have a point. I don't like your solution. How about this counterproposal? Meanwhile, on this other issue, I think you're being really, really idiotic, and you've got to listen to my complaint now, and we can work out a possible solution because now it's my turn to complain. That's how we used to be, and that's how we could be if we weren't being stoked into an artificial civil war by truly, truly evil traitors to the American way of life and the American way of thinking.
1: Isn't that the goal, to keep us divided? And that's why we have the left-right paradigm, the illusion of electing a leader that's probably selected for us. But that's a different topic. But, you know, we're talking about China now. And I hear so many people saying to me, Mel, we need to buy American. And I agree in theory. Well, you go to a store where most items are made in China. I'm not going to mention the name, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. And, or go to another store where you have to pay 70% more. No matter how much American pride I have, wallet and paycheck will dictate purchasing habits, don't you think?
0: Well, yes. And, and what I just described to you is a reason to feel at least somewhat good about it. The fact of the matter is every other pack's empire... In history gloated about how much better they were they infuriated the uh, their colonies and they robbed their colonies like Gandhi was complaining about the robbery of of India of jobs we have done the opposite and the world that we've made by our the American trade deficits has been spectacular Never before has there been so much hope. Never before have so many kids gone to school. Never before have there been has there been so little violence. I don't mind buying cheap goods, knowing that it's enabling kids in China to go to school, because those kids are much less likely to attack me if they uh, and my kids, if they're going to university and reading my sci-fi novels. Um, and and becoming problem solvers and inventors themselves. Now, mind you, I do give a ten percent bonus to buying American because I'm patriotic. I mean, anybody who watched the movie The Postman, or or, or much better, read the much 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 better novel. Uh, anybody, anybody <laughs> yours? Yes, anybody would know that I'm patriotic in a in a. In, in in a sense that's not you know, ja- uh, flag waving, USA USA. But but uh, I believe that the American Pax has been good for the world for all of our terrible mistakes like Vietnam and and Iran and and all of those things. Empires make thuggish mistakes, and we've had a better ratio of good things to mistakes. Uh, than any other empire that's been, and and we will leave when we leave the stage as the leaders of the world, a world in which ninety percent of the people at least are lower middle class and sending their kids to school, and that, that that's okay. I don't mind, I don't mind pay, uh, doing that, especially since at least Costco, they buy from China, but they do send the inspectors over there, whereas another company we can name doesn't. But having said that, um, it's still, you know, it's still important to step back and look at the big picture of what's going on. How have we paid for 70 years for these trade deficits where Americans got into this habit that saved the world? And the habit is buying trillions of dollars worth of crap we didn't need. And that's the reason why the middle class is spreading around the world. But how could we afford it? We've been bleeding red ink around the world for 70 years, building those factories overseas and, and, build, and, and enabling the kids to go to school. Well, there's an answer to that. And it's called science and technology. Every decade since the 40s, while we were buying all this crap, we were also inventing. And it started with jet airplanes and with, with rockets and satellites and telecommunications and Xerox and, um, catalytic converters to get rid of the smog, uh, uh, pollution control technologies. The, the freaking internet. Every decade we developed new ways so that our factories were still important and relevant by making some really cool new thing and selling it so that we could afford to buy the tube socks and the textiles and the cars uh, from overseas. And that worked until the first decade of the 21st century. And the first decade of the 21st century, we started to see the war on science and on technology, and um, devastating effects upon government-centered research, which has always been the lead that led to um, commercialization of new techniques and new technologies. And for the first time, we had a decade, the 2000s, when no truly significant new thing, was invented out of America that made us rich enough to pay for all this this spending spree, and uh, you can draw conclusions as to what I consider to be um, a political lesson to be learned from this, because it's turning around now. Uh, our science budgets are going back up. The rates of uh, of patents by American industry are starting to turn around and go back up. Um, and, and this is where we've got to concentrate our efforts. We need to be spending more on education in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And one exciting thing that's happening is a true American genius named Dean Kamen, K-A-M-E-N. He started the first robotics league. You've got to look it up. Um, something like uh, five or 10% of the high schools in America now have first robotics teams in which the kids um, gather every January 1st to find out what the new challenge is. And then they spend three months designing and building a robot that they take to competitions to uh, engage in um in, uh, it, it, one could call it robot wars, but actually they're not supposed to hurt each other's robots. It's picking up balls and tossing them through hoops and throwing frisbees and doing amazing things with these robots. And it's not just for the nerds. Lots and lots and lots of the uh, kids on campus who know no nerdy stuff at all get engaged in the organizational aspects, the uh, marketing aspects. Um, about 50% of the kids who engage on these high school teams are, are not uh, science geeks at all, but it's huge fun. And on my kids' high school campus, the robot robotics guys in their t-shirts and their sweaters walking around, they're the ones who get the shouts and the thumbs up more than any of the sports teams. Uh, and and this is the kind of thing and they need mentors so any of you geeks out there who uh, might find a high school near you uh, you could volunteer as a mentor and help them to get their first robotics team started Uh, another uh, really big sign of of hope is the maker movement Um, make magazine M-A-K-E wonderful magazine for people who just want to do it themselves it's, it's the leader of the whole DIY movement, um, although there are other magazines as, as well. And as a result of this maker movement, uh, you're getting a burgeoning of this age of amateurs that um, more and more, it started with retirees, but now more and more people with regular jobs are spending a couple of evenings a week and and and, uh, and their weekends making stuff and forming a club to refurbish some old things uh, or do amateur science or to build this and that wonderful thing it's returning to our roots as as a nation of tinkerers um and if you look up david brin and the word tinkerers you'll find my graphic novel about this um, and 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 in many american cities there are now maker centers where you can go and for very little money rent a workbench and have access to all the fabulous machines they have now for uh milling or or cast molding or uh, injection molding the plastic and making a prototype for your invention so that you can you can go and, 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 uh, and get it picked up and, and made into a product. and And this it's not just the turnaround and improvement in government research that's making this decade better in this regard. It's this whole movement of saying, screw the government. Uh, we're going to innovate ourselves. And and to that, I say, right on, right on.
1: And we have to take our one and only intermission, but this is turning into a very great conversation, solution-oriented. That's exactly what I went for segment two. But I'm just thinking of the 1980s. I remember working at a Fortune 500 company in the 80s when the personal computer came along and a large portion of the workforce was just deployed somewhere else. They were able to fill jobs, perhaps in technology. But what about manufacturing in general? I don't think those jobs will return. And if that's the case, then as the population grows, where will those jobs be? But all of this, when we come back, we'll also, let me just emphasize that, that title of the show, Existence. Do all civilizations make the same fatal mistakes? And also, I've heard that you say the 21st century starts in 2014. All of this when we come back. But tell the audience how to get in touch with your work, learn more about your books, and so on.
0: Oh, well, you know, there's um, davidbrin.com, D- David, and then B-R-I-N, like brain without an A. Uh, but the um, it's a very lavish site, and folks can find... Um, a lot on nonfiction. Uh, my nonfiction book, *The Transparent Society*, will technology make us choose between freedom and privacy? Um, is very much about these questions that are risen by uh, uh, Edward Snowden and the whole NSA question the, uh, of, of whether we're going to enter a surveillance, Big Brother era. And we can talk a bit about that. And of course, you know, my main profession as a science fiction author, people can find excerpts from my novels and free downloadable short stories about our future um, all at that website.
1: Great folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with scientist, best-selling author, and futurist, Dr. David Brin. This is Mel Ambergas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest... Go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
0: This is David Bren and you are listening to Veritas